Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, Prognosis listeners. This month, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories from the podcast. On this episode, we see if exercise tracking apps and gadgets like Fitbit really do make us healthier. Thanks, and enjoy. It's almost 7.30, and I just got in from my morning walk. Thanks to my Fitbit and my phone, I know that I'm already more than halfway to hitting my 10,000-step target for the day. I have my Fitbit. Ooh, says that I have walked 7,031 steps. And you know what? I have on my phone as well another health app. Ooh, and that one says I've done 7,411 steps. Now that it's warmer out, I'm on track to beat last week's numbers too. But I'll admit, sometimes I wonder if my Fitbit really makes me any more fit. Welcome to Prognosis, Bloomberg's podcast about the intersection of health and technology and the unexpected places it's taking us. I'm your host, Michelle Faye Cortez. Even if you never use it, you most likely have a health app installed on your phone. Apple Health, which comes with every iPhone, can clock everything from steps to sleep. Some 300,000 digital health apps are competing for a share of the market to help you track your calories, watch your blood sugar, guide your workouts, or help you meditate. In the last episode, we told you what these apps are doing with your data. This time, my colleague Naomi Kresge looks into what the health apps can do for their users, for us. My app addiction started last year when a friend of a friend told me he was using an app as a smart alarm clock set to ring when he was sleeping most lightly in the morning. I was super intrigued. I downloaded the app and pretty soon realized it would also grade my sleep on a 100-point scale. I love being told whether I'm doing things right. So soon it became the first thing I looked at every morning. But that wasn't enough. I wanted to know why I was sleeping well or poorly. So I caved and bought the premium version. That was my first real sign of app addiction. Another friend gave me a bunch of recommendations for other apps to try. I started using a period tracker and telling that app about way more than just my menstrual cycle. I recorded gastrointestinal side effects, my moods, my sex life. That app knew more about me than most real humans did. And at the same time, I was researching apps for diabetes patients for a magazine article, and then eventually also started using a life tracking app linked to my sleep app. That one shows you where you are during the day, work or shopping or home, etc. So I could watch how long I spend bicycling to work, walking, or at the gym. It felt like being able to watch all these elements of my life so closely was giving me more control over them somehow. But the big question, 
was whether it was actually improving my health. For example, the sleep app showed me almost immediately what helps me sleep well, things like meditating before bed and working out, and what kills my sleep. Basically, booze, parties, and early morning light. But my sleep only really improved after my life slowed down. I had just come off a jam-packed spring and summer in which I had moved, finished a big project at work, and gotten married. So I figured my next step should be collecting more data, which meant downloading more apps. I'm part of a team of reporters who write about European health and consumer goods companies, so I asked my colleagues for recommendations. Their top pick was the hugely popular MyFitnessPal app. Sportswear company Under Armour bought this app in 2015 for $475 million. Here's Michael LaGuardia, Under Armour's Senior Vice President of Digital Products, explaining why. We look at fitness as a holistic activity, that it's about the fuel that you put into, it's about the activity that you do, and MyFitnessPal is there to help you keep track of that. The central function of MyFitnessPal like so many other fitness apps, is counting calories in, calories out. Now, I am almost 40 years old and had, if you believe it, actually never tried to do this in a systematic way before. It's not that I didn't read food labels or think about calories. It's just that I had always been too lazy to write them down and had relied on a combination of exercise and metabolism to burn them off. But my colleagues assured me that I would be able to find the calorie and nutrition facts for almost anything in MyFitnessPal. So on February 1st, I logged my first day's worth of meals. The app told me I'd eaten about 1,500 calories, about a third of which came from snacks. Cookies and peanuts I'd eaten in the office, and then after work, bread and pâté with a colleague. <sighs> oh dear. At least I'd skipped having any wine. The app lets you set a calorie target based on whether you want to lose, maintain, or gain weight. I set my target on maintain and kept on logging. The easiest things to record were straightforward items like pieces of fruit or eggs. But logging anything I'd cooked for myself, arguably the healthiest choice, required a bit of guesswork. To find out what the evidence is that this app, or any app, can improve its users' health, I called Oyuka Biamsaran, a doctor and researcher at Bond University in Australia. She published one of the few overview studies of the effectiveness of digital health apps last year. We came to this research as, you know, just any other 21st century um, citizen with smartphones, and we started seeing a lot of um, news and articles on how smartphone apps are treating this thing and that thing, and it's, you know, being um, touted as the next big thing in um, health and tech world. Science is very specific about how we know medical treatments work, but that's not the case when it comes to consumer products like most health apps. Oyuka started looking for rigorous studies. She surveyed almost 800 trials of apps conducted between 2008 and 2017. But once she looked more closely, she found only a handful of the studies showed the apps had some meaningful effect on health outcomes. 
Since then, drug makers have started looking more at apps that could be used as therapies. Swiss drugs giant Novartis got U.S. approval for one to treat substance abuse last year. But across the app world, Oyuka says evidence still remains a rare commodity. We would estimate that less than 1% of all of these apps are actually being tested. And for apps that aren't being reviewed by health regulators, just having done any kind of test can be a marketing point, no matter what the outcome was. The term for this is experimercial, a combination of experiment and commercial. And when the study doesn't show any benefit, they don't mention it, but they will mention in the app description that our app has been scientifically tested. And that kind of gives this false notion of legitimacy to the potential customers and consumers. MyFitnessPal was among the few apps Oyuka found that had been tested in an independent clinical trial. Conducted about five years ago in Los Angeles, the study randomly assigned 212 overweight adults to either use the app or to pursue, and I quote, any activities you would like to lose weight. After six months, neither group lost much weight. The researchers did speculate, though, that the app might be useful for patients who were already trying to watch their calorie intake. I asked Michael, the Under Armour executive, for his thoughts on the results. That's absolutely directly in line with our experience with this app. You know, like I said, it's not, we don't think of it as a health tool. We don't think of it as something that someone would say, put this on your phone, you will get better. We think of it as uh, an integral part in someone's journey when they've made the decision, I'm going to change my life, I'm going to hit some fitness goals, we'll be there to help. Maybe that was the problem with my diet app experiment. I didn't start out with a particular fitness goal. I wasn't actually trying to change my body or my life. And in fact, another force was at work, one a lot stronger than willpower or workouts. I was pregnant. And so for the first time, practically since puberty, my body felt like it was careening out of my control. Low carb diet? Hard to handle when you need to eat toast practically as soon as you open your eyes in the morning in order to settle your stomach. And I knew I would have to gain weight, not maintain it, let alone lose it. Still, I kept logging my meals and my exercise. I started to read more about the nutrients I would need for a healthy pregnancy. And I started to get a little obsessive about making sure I logged them. When my fitness pal inexplicably didn't record the calcium in my brand of yogurt, it felt like a personal insult. I started keeping a very, very close eye on my protein intake. And I started worrying about whether I was getting too much vitamin A, something that would never have occurred to me before, from eating too many arugula salads. I started to wonder whether I was monitoring myself a little too much. Today, we are being reminded every single minute of how sub-optimized we are and what we should be doing in order to be more optimized. That's Carl Saderstrom, an associate professor at Stockholm Business School. He co-wrote a book called The Wellness Syndrome, in which he argued that the pressure to become ever healthier is actually anything but healthy. For another project, he also used himself as a guinea pig. So what I did was that I was using an app to log everything that I was eating, 
I was also using one of these wearables, a wristband that uh, logged my sleeping and logged the activity I was doing during the day. And then I was spending all my days in the gym and I was uh, over the course of that month gaining something like eight kilos and the month ended with me participating in a weightlifting competition, which I incidentally ended up coming last in. Carl writes about our society's obsession with wellness as being part of an individualistic culture where you need to demonstrate that you're performing at your peak, where there's a moral value linked with how your body looks, and also where workers who spend their days emailing and organizing seek satisfaction or at least a sense of having something to show for their efforts from improving their bodies. He says health apps are a lot like an idea from Freud, where your conscience prods you to do what you know you should do, but don't want to. So it is using an app as this little angry man sitting on your shoulder, constantly telling you that what you do is is wrong and what you should be doing is this or that. And... uh, I think it says something about how difficult it is for for all you humans and probably always been to live the way that we are supposed to be living. And I think to some extent, the whole idea of being human is that we are imperfect. There's no way of always being able to do everything that we're supposed to be doing. But I think what's different today than in the past, and the health apps are a big part of this, is that we are being reminded 24-7, that we're not living up to that idealized version of ourselves. Carl argues that this focus on self-optimization is part of a larger political development in which health is viewed more as an individual concern and less as a broader social good. And the more society moves in that direction, the easier it becomes to demonize and ridicule people who do not have the resources to look after their own health. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to Carl made me think about my own app experiments in a different way. There I was, obsessing about vitamin A and analyzing the nutrition content of the free protein bars in the Bloomberg pantry. The whole thing seemed so narcissistic. There was one time, though, that an app did help me do something that's actually objectively healthy. I quit smoking a couple of years ago. As any former smoker would know, The way cigarettes fit into your daily ritual is one of the things that make it super hard to quit. I used to love smoking in the late afternoon. It's a little moment to rest my brain before the last few hours of my workday. So once I quit, I started using a meditation app called Headspace as a replacement. I didn't think of Headspace at the time as a health app, per se. It has more than 1 million paying subscribers, and offers everything from a cats and boats soundscape for falling asleep to meditation prep for students who are taking exams. But when I talked to the app's chief science officer, Megan Jones-Bell, I found out that they actually do see themselves that way. The company says there are 67 randomized clinical trials being done on its app, 
including studies on everything from quitting smoking to managing stress and pain. There are a number of ways that people can use meditation to improve their health and happiness. And that can range from using it as we think about it as kind of a vitamin, which means that you are um, using it more in a preventative health capacity, such as trying to um, boost your resilience to stress, which is something that we have researched in a number of our trials and have a number of very rigorous studies underway looking at how that actually is proven out in kind of brain changes. The company is also working on a separate version of its app that doctors could prescribe to their patients, like a medicine. This is more complicated because Headspace needs to figure out with the Food and Drug Administration how best to test the new app and regulate it to make sure it works. Headspace hasn't started these trials yet, and it could be a couple of years before the new product is approved. I asked Megan why Headspace would spend money in the meantime testing its consumer app, too, when there's no regulator demanding data. I think because we're really playing the long game here, our science strategy is not unlike the way that we've approached redefining the brand of meditation. You can think about Headspace's origins and really changing the cultural um, perception of meditation and mindfulness. And, you know, we've certainly lifted all ships in the process of doing that and really helping create this market and moving it out of this kind of more woo-woo experience into something that is very approachable for a a diverse range of, of consumers. A few studies are also being done on Headspace's big competitor, the app Calm. So when these trials read out, assuming the results are published, we should get a better idea if at least this particular corner of the app market works. Some in the health apps industry think that an evidence base will become more necessary across the market as a whole, not just for apps that could be prescribed as medicines. I talked to Carl Johan Haderoth, CEO of Sleep Cycle, the alarm clock app that got me started on this project. It's really, really interesting for us. I think the whole industry is heading in that direction. I think this industry is going to be regulated in some way in the coming years. I don't know exactly how, but I think it will. And I mean, we like that. And now I have a confession to make. Like a lot of health app users, I wound up using what kept me entertained and dropping the rest. I'm still using Sleep Cycle, partly because I like to compete with my husband to see who gets a better night's sleep, and because I take a morbid interest in seeing how much worse my sleep might get as I get more and more pregnant. Well, you know what I mean. Bigger and bigger. But my fitness pal was more complicated. The turning point was around the time when I was moving from the she ate too many burritos to the is that a bump stage of pregnancy. I noticed that on the weekends, when I would skip the app, I felt so much better about my food intake. And during the week, when I was worrying about protein and calcium and vitamins and calories, I felt like I was going crazy. I would look up online calculators to reassure myself that my weight gain was within normal parameters, and then beat myself up for not hitting a nutrient target, even though I had exceeded my calorie goal for the day. My husband, Philip, actually started to worry about me. 
I mean, I wouldn't say it was crazy. You used the word crazy before. I wouldn't say it was crazy, but definitely uh, you were a bit obsessed. I remember you always telling me like not to worry so much about weight during pregnancy. And I wonder whether some of the experience with this was just tied together with that as well. Oh, that could definitely be the case. I mean, I do remember that you asked very often like, oh God, is this, am I too big? Am I gaining too much weight? And I then, I mean, I even got angry about this question because it's not a competition of like who gains more or who gains less weight during pregnancy. Your body does what your body does and each pregnancy is different. Different. At some point in time, I was afraid that you would, I don't know, stop eating when you, if you thought that you had gained too much weight, which would maybe have been unhealthy for you or the baby. And uh, if an app makes you even consider something like that, it's definitely not a good app. After Philip told me that, I quit using the app. But not everybody is as neurotic as I am. And with so little evidence about health apps and health, I think the bottom line here is that you can take what's good for you and just leave the rest behind. And that sometimes, the more you try to control things, to optimize yourself, as Carl would say, the more you eventually realize that you just need to let go. That's it for this week's prognosis. Thanks for listening. Do you have a story about healthcare in the U.S. or around the world? We want to hear from you. Find me on Twitter at Faye Cortez or email mcortez at Bloomberg.net. If you are a fan of this episode, please take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps new listeners find the show. And don't forget to subscribe. This episode was produced by Liz Smith and Topher Forges. Our story editor was Rick Shine. Francesca Levy is head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll be back with our next episode on July 4th. See you then. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.